It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a wet, rainy Tuesday, the 20th of March to you. We've got another day to go before a spring officially springs or has sprung or will sprang, something like that. At any rate, thank you. Where's your thesaurus when you need it, right? So uh, good to have you on board for tonight's program. We're going to keep you company right up until 7 o'clock and, as always, keep you on top of traffic as well. Wet, rainy out there, as you already know, so we, as always, encourage you to drive with caution. And we've got Michael Bennett hanging out tonight in the KFAX Traffic Center. He'll keep you on top of what's going on traffic-wise this evening. Coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program, we're going to talk about the fact that America is one of the most incarcerated nations in the Western world. And while certainly there are a number of uh, issues that need to sort of be in there as qualifiers in terms of, well, if we're committing more crimes, of course so, or uh, population numbers, things of this sort. But the bottom line is we seem to do a very good job in this country with people getting into prison. We don't seem to do a very good job with what happens on the backside. And many would argue that we need to take an entire fresh look at incarceration in America. There's a new book out called Decarcerating America from Mass Punishment to Public Health. And its editor, Ernest Drucker, will join us a little bit later on tonight. Ernest is a professor at Columbia University. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. Meanwhile, through the magic of radio, I don't know how he does it. I just heard him there a moment before tonight's program. And then suddenly he's on the telephone with us. He is simply a man of many talents. He is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer, Brad Dacus, counselor. Good to have you with us tonight. Oh, it's great to be on the program. Thank you, Craig. Uh, a lot to talk about this evening. One of the big stories that we have been following, of course, is the lawsuit. Supreme Court today hearing oral arguments in the case of the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates against California's own Attorney General Javier Becerra. All of this related to the so-called Reproductive Fact Act, California bill that would compel crisis pregnancy centers across our state to essentially advertise for state-funded abortion services. First and foremost, before we get into the nitty-gritty of this case, it seems to be a little bit disingenuous. I mean, do, do we really actually believe that there is a shortage of information amongst women in the state of California or anywhere in the country, for that matter, that they don't understand that abortion is a service, is an alternative, is an option available to them, that suddenly we need to now hang up posters in crisis pregnancy centers to let them know about this, that this this seems to be like telling drunks that AA is available. It doesn't make any sense to me. You're absolutely right. It's just uh, purely pretextual. Uh, it's an attempt by Planned Parenthood and, and organizations, abortion mills like them, to uh, try to get more business uh, by forcing those who are helping women in crises with alternatives they have to have a big uh, sign telling women, women where they get a free or low-cost abortion. Um, it's a it's a slap in the face, unfortunately, though, to not only those women uh, and respecting them and, and treating them, you know, like they don't know that abortion is an alternative. Uh, but it's really uh, trying to uh, undermine the wonderful work of these uh, pro-life clinics and and their and their important free speech rights uh, that are in question here uh, that are being challenged. Uh, whenever we have the government telling a nonprofit private ministry, like a crisis pregnancy center, that they have to have a, a sign saying something that they totally don't believe in, 
um, then we really don't have free speech. So this is a very, very important case. That's why we at Pacific Justice filed uh, a lawsuit on behalf of two such clinics that are, is now pending for the Supreme Court. Hey, this uh, seems to be a bit disingenuous here. I mean, if these organizations, and I know that uh, uh, everybody from Planned Parenthood and NARAL to Emily's List have all stood up in defense of uh, this California law here, uh, it, it would seem to me that if they are truly pro-choice, as they purport to be, uh, that they would want to encourage women to explore alternatives to abortion so that they understand the totality of the options that are available to them. That might be keeping the child the term, working things out with the father, keeping the child the term, putting the child up for adoption. Uh, I mean, again, it doesn't seem to be any short of, of information pertaining to the option of abortion itself. But the other options, I think, sometimes are a little bit more murky. Many women don't understand or aren't aware of the fact that there are organizations that are there to stand behind them, that will provide medical services, that will provide everything from uh, um, prenatal care down to once the child is born, uh, how do you put the child up for adoption? Or if you keep the child, uh, where can you go to get things like uh, baby clothes and uh, child care and cribs and all of this? And much of these services available, I might mention, uh, without... Uh, cost to the to the recipient. And so it would seem to me, in keeping with the spirit of pro-choice, that these organizations would be gleefully behind the efforts of many involved with uh, pro-life uh, clinics, but but apparently not so. Right. They're, they're upset. Groups like Planned Parenthood are upset that they're losing uh, business. Uh, abortions are, are falling. Um, there's fewer uh, babies that they're unborn that they're, they're able to, to kill or pregnancies terminate. And uh, that's that's their thrust. That's their their their, their, their purpose. That's they they bring a lot of revenue. Uh, so they're trying in, in a very cheap uh, way to to dis, to, uh, to to shortchange that uh, the rights of others. And you know, it, it also comes to uh, to light in terms of uh, other court decisions. You know, out of uh, courts like in New York and, and other circuits back east, uh, they've already struck this this stuff down. They've already said this is a, a clear violation of free speech, First Amendment rights. Of private institutions, individuals, uh, and the government has no business with it. So, uh, the fact that California is so zealous, and uh, the leadership and legislators are so zealous in this regard, just shows you how extreme and how out of touch they are with civil liberties and uh, our constitutional rights. Well, well, let's think about this for a moment, though. Let's not be uh, too 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 hasty. I know that. Uh attorneys like to head off to court, maybe we can strike a deal here. I would be willing to strike a compromise, for example, and say that, okay, uh, if you're going to compel um, crisis pregnancy centers to essentially advertise for state-funded abortion services and post big signs letting them know this, can't we cut a deal and say, okay, we'll do that. In exchange, you have to post big signs in um, Planned Parenthood centers and uh, locations where uh, NARAL or other um, pro-abortion organizations are operating or providing counseling or providing direct abortion services, private doctors, what have you. A big sign that says, you have other options to abortion, please contact your local crisis pregnancy center. I mean, can't we work out a deal here? Yeah, yeah. The Planned Parenthood uh, never offered that in the legislation. Yeah, they sure I wonder never, why. <laughs> yeah, and they sure don't do it voluntarily at any of their clinics uh, that I'm aware of. So, it, no, it, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's a very cheap attempt for them and their interest group to uh, to further agenda at the expense of the, the constitutional First Amendment rights. And, we're, and the good news, Craig, the bottom line is the oral argument today went very well. 
we look, it looks like it's not going to be a, a cliffhanger. It looks like we've got some from both sides of the aisle uh, on the bench, both sides of the bench that are going to be coming together and declaring this unconstitutional. Um, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm not always the best, but I'm predicting at least a 6-3, maybe even a 7-2 or better a decision in favor of the free speech rights of these wonderful pro-life pregnancy clinics. Something as crazy as this, where clearly we shouldn't be surprised, as I offered my last suggestion, largely tongue-in-cheek, that these pro-abortion organizations don't actually support real choices other than abortion itself. That said, though, I've got to wonder, when legislation like this makes it through the, uh, the legislature, it's working its way through the Assembly, it's working its way through the Senate, it goes to the governor's desk, doesn't somebody at some point say, A, let's make sure that this is actually constitutionally allowable ahead of time. I mean, I I take note that the particular case heard today is a suit filed against the Attorney General of the State of California, I would think is is sort of the number one uh, guy responsible for upholding the law in California. He, of all people, should know the constitutional questions that legislation of this sort raises. How did this even make it into law in California? Well, unfortunately, um, the, the, the legislature is so extreme in their agenda, uh, they can choose to, uh, to listen or not to listen to uh, legislative counsel, and uh, they can move, move ahead. Or, and also, you have appointed the legislative counsel, those on that same ideology oftentimes, for those who are controlled with, with those who are controlled the legislature. So it's, uh, it's very problematic. But the good news is that because we do have a federal court system the way we do, and we do have a Supreme Court uh, moving in the, in the right direction, uh, that uh, even those uh, legislatures and, and, uh, and, and laws, uh, at the end of the day, have to be held accountable to the court, and we're uh, somewhat optimistic, very optimistic, that it'll be a good decision. I guess at the end of the day, too, we should also be very grateful that it is so... Um trying so difficult to be able to modify the Constitution, uh, requiring so many states sign off on any constitutional amendment. I I used to hold an opinion that we needed to make some changes here and touch on a number of issues, and and yet I'm beginning now more and more to side with uh, our our friend, uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly, who said, if you open ourselves up to a constitutional Congress and start giving them the opportunity to tinker with this very key foundational document that protects our rights, uh, you have no idea the kind of trouble that you could unearth. And I, I'm, I'm starting to more and more believe with the observation that Phyllis Schlafly, or the, the opinion, rather, that Phyllis Schlafly held on this issue, because if it weren't for constitutional protections like the First Amendment right that could come in and say, hang on a minute here, uh, and and reverse something like this before the United States Supreme Court, just imagine the trouble we would be in. How long, I know you don't have a crystal ball, uh, Counselor, but how long do you think before uh, this thing runs its course through the US, U.S. Supreme Court? Do you think we can have a decision on this by summer? Uh, yes, we're looking, I'm looking probably at early June uh, for a decision. Uh, these kind of key uh, critical decisions uh, often are held to the very end. Uh, and this is a major impact decision for protecting free speech rights for all Americans. I think we'll see it probably held off to the very end. All right. Well, we appreciate uh, the insights and certainly appreciate your efforts on behalf of not only people of faith, but certainly standing up for First Amendment rights and also making sure that we're, we're not providing such a skewed viewpoint, uh, skewed opinion, uh, skewed directionality 
uh, as a law like this suggests. I mean, again, just think about how ludicrous this is on the surface. Does anybody for a moment think that they're really pulling the wool over our eyes as to what the intent is? I mean, really, you're going to post signs in uh, pro-life clinics telling women that, oh, by the way, if you didn't know, you can go have an abortion. Unbelievable. All right, there is Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. We invite you, as always, to check out their great work online at pji.org. That's pji.org. All right. That, of course, means it's time for traffic. You you guessed where we were going next. It's what I like about you, Terrell. You're just really on top of your game. <laughs> Let's see what's happening out there on this Tuesday ride home. The latest with Michael Bennett. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door. From that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, it'll come to me. It's a sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you get a little overwhelmed, though, especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God. And yet, boy, how do you do it? I, I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is, how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, are you good on the follow-through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I, I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store, and they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet, is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says, absolutely, yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, when I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea. Thank you. Yeah, that um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term. And, and as we talk about uh, lending the sense of, of organization, I, I know some people might shudder a little bit and think, oh, my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> i got to go buy a laptop so I have it handy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I know that I need simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me was just out of my own prayer life feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I, I said I was going to pray long term. And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way. And it started out, you know, note cards, three by five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that. <laughs> 
as you've approached this, you're, you're taking it very um, topical in a sense. And I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category. Mm-hmm. And then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart. When I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people are struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topics. And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month. Right. Right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise. Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because, you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the Scripture talks about going and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of Heavenly Father, I need, right. so-and-so needs, the other one needs, and it's, it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if, if if heaven had an email address, we would, we would do that and just say, you know, dear God, here's my list. Uh, get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests. Right. You're, you're, you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God. Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities. It can be very heavy, and I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers, and then praising God that he's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things, but remember, he's almighty, he's the comforter, he's our helper. There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me, and I and I think it's one, you know, a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually 
do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs Mm -hmm. and then forget about the times and they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion, in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where he's answered prayer. Absolutely. With with each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue? And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas. And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith. Right, and that is my hope through all of this. That, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just you know in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will it will expand our love for God and our love for our community, and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day. I, funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer Mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Um, as, As I told my nurse... Uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. Uh, you need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today, and I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, Mm -hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which he is there with us, sometimes we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date, and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource, too. The book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation 536 here 
on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. There is one thing that America has done a fantastic job at over recent years, recent decades, really, and that is incarceration. We do a real good job at picking people up and locking them up. The outcome, though, of the criminal justice system seems to be one that's in um, constant churning and shrouded in many, many questions. Largely, do we even really understand, is there any real sense of agreement amongst Americans as to what the so-called criminal justice system is supposed to be doing? At the end of the day, is this simply about incarcerating people to punish them for their crimes and then putting them back out onto the streets again? Is there any sense of trying to, I don't know, um, provide people with some of the tools and resources that they need so that they will not return to jail later on? To help us understand exactly what's going on with the rate of incarceration in America, we are joined today by Ernst Decker. Ernest, by the way, is uh, in addition to a number of uh, uh, credits that he has to his name, serves a professor of global public health at New York University College of Global Public Health. He is, um, in addition to that, also professor emeritus in the Department of Family and Social Medicine at Montefiore Medical Center and is the author of a number of best-selling books, the latest of which he serves as editor on, is called Decarcerating America from Mass Punishment to Public Health. And, Ernest, great to have you on the show. That's good to be here. Let's talk about this issue. Uh, some of the, some, some of the uh, statistics out there would suggest that there are more people in prison in America than any other nation on the planet. That, that probably has to be qualified in terms of per capita, things of that sort. Uh, and maybe that's because there's more honest reporting here, maybe because there's greater degrees of criminal behavior. Um, maybe it's because of all of our drug-related arrests. But regardless, we've got a very high incarceration rate, and yet the other side, in terms of of any real practical sense of how the benefits are to America, that seems to be uh, sorely lacking. How come? Well, first of all, the facts of the matter are are as they were presented first. It's not a a mistake. Uh, We have the largest number of people in prison of any country in the world, and the highest rate of incarceration of any country in the world, including China. And, of course, as we're putting people in jail, I don't know that we've ever really collectively answered for ourselves the question in our criminal justice system, is this simply a matter of, of punishing people? We often refer to it as the penal system. So if we're penalizing people for breaking the law, uh, are we doing anything to try and make sure that they don't do it again? And th- there's the area where we seem to be really confused. Well, I don't know about being confused. I think there's a lot of denial of what goes on. For example, we have the highest recidivism rate of any country in the world, 65% now over five years. Recidivism, for those who don't know, is the getting rearrested after being re- released from prison, being rearrested for new crimes. So it shows that the, as think of it as an intervention uh, to, uh, the, you know, that punishment is an intervention meant to reduce crime by, by, by um, um, the term they use is um, incapacitating the criminal. It's one of the things they, they do by putting you in prison. You can't do crimes anymore on the outside. But, you know, there's a book about this called But They All Come Up, They All Come Back. And people, you know, prisons, people disappeared into prisons for these long sentences. But they eventually come home, and that's one of the things I've been working on now. It's the, I'm a psychologist as well as an epidemiologist, and the effects of being in prison 
for long periods of time is very traumatic, not just on the individual, but on their families, their children especially. Eighty-five percent of the people in, in, in prison have children. Well, and, and you refer to the idea that we sort of uh, we incapacitate them, and that, and that may be true, at least for a season. But then you look at the rate of recidivism in our country today, and, and some, I think, are legitimately wondering, are, are we bringing people in to punish them and essentially help them learn their lesson then send them back out into the community at large? Or are we creating institutes of higher criminality where sometimes they come in as minor criminals and they spend two, three, four, six years, whatever their time of incarceration is, and then when they head back out, uh, they are more deeply embedded into criminal behavior. That's absolutely true, and it's especially true of the jails, which have this high throughput. You know, that's, that's the, the jails compared to prisons. Prisons are long-term sentences over a year. Jails are mainly holding people who have not yet been convicted of a crime. They've been charged, and they can't make bail, so they sit in jail. And, and the longer time they sit there and the worse they're treated, because jails are the most dangerous places. They have the highest suicide rates, the highest murder rates, the more fights, the, you know, the more rapes. So everything bad in prisons takes place more in jails. New York had its famous, infamous Rikers Island, which I worked in at a period in my hospital. Montefiore used to do the health services there for 20 years. And it was a different place back then, but it eventually rose to having 23,000 people in jail biggest population of any jail in the world, and those people uh, would plead guilty and plead to, to, even if they hadn't done it in order to get the hell out of there, and the prisons were, 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 were hotels compared to the jail. At any rate, uh, the, the mass incarceration story is the uh, really driven by the drug policies and the drug, the mandatory sentence for drug offenses, and, and, that, and that's not history like it should be, you recently hear the attorney general and the president calling to death penalty death penalties and life sentences for mandatory sentences for drug dealers and uh, they won't let go of that and uh, the failure to deal with the drug issue is so dramatically expressed by the overdose deaths this epidemic of overdose deaths we had 64,000 people die of drug overdoses last year in this country and they weren't being, they, they weren't being uh, recreational drug users, drug addicts. They were people who were taking pain medications, and, and pain medications based on opiates are indeed addictive, and people become ad- easily addicted to these drugs. And uh, there was a big cover-up by the drug company that manufactured them in terms of denying the addictive potential of the drug because it wasn't heroin. And eventually, uh, they became black markets for these other drugs, uh, and, and heroin then came in to meet that market as it developed, and that's where the, a lot of the deaths came from. And, 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 and you probably heard of. And clearly, in that regard, I mean, the, the broader picture would suggest that America has some pretty significant social ills that it needs to deal with. This isn't the case where we're not doing a good enough job of arresting enough people. We, we don't really spend enough time investigating or trying to understand what motivates people to engage in drug abuse in the first place. And then we suggest, well, bigger walls, higher jails, um, or building more jails, rather, will help cure the problem. But that, that really does doesn't do that. If anything, it helps to, as we've seen, exacerbate it, doesn't it? It does. Uh, there's a very important movie called The 13th by Eva DuVarnay, the woman who made the movie Selma, uh, Academy Award winner. It's a wonderful movie about the, about the 13th refers to the 13th Amendment, which President Lincoln signed, freeing the slaves. 
And in the statement that the United States will no longer have uh, slavery or bondage was uh, except for those who have been convicted of a crime who would, uh, who would, who would not be protected by that. They would they'd remain slaves. And there's a whole literature about the, the treatment of people in prisons, which shows the similarities to the treatment of slaves. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the, 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 the cover-ups of what goes on, uh, the abuses that go on, and the use of solitary confinement. We have more people in solitary confinement, which is now acknowledged as a form of torture, if you're there more than a week or something like that. And we have, to, we have more people in solitary than the whole rest of the world combined. Um, you know, it's very hard for a country to look at itself and say, we're the worst about something like this. Uh, it's a terrible indictment. And it's changing now because we've been we've been emptying the prisons out. You're at, you're in California, aren't you? Correct. Now there's been a successful program to cut, to push back against these punitive systems. So the three strikes law was pushed back by Prop Six, I think sixty six it was called or something, and already had a dramatic effect in reducing the number of of, of life sentences. They were giving out life sentences as a third strike for people who stole videotapes from a store. Uh, and that was that. That was the that was the turning point, realizing that this was out of hand. And uh, one of the articles in the book, one of the chapters, is by Michael Romano, who's a law professor at Stanford, who worked on this business of getting uh, uh, getting the proposition done that ended three strikes. I don't know if you heard much about it in your time there, but it was certainly one of those. You know, it's it, it, it's foregoing judgment on a case by case basis. You know, categorizing people and then taking their lives away, in essence. Well, and sadly, I think part of the issue here, too, was that we'd gone through a long stretch of time where very lenient sentences were being handed out to violent criminals, and uh, on the heels of the Polly Class case that happened here, in fact, in the in the Bay Area up in Petaluma, uh, voters finally said, you know what, if judges won't do their jobs, we'll do their jobs for them. But you're right, it takes out of the equation the capacity to be able to then evaluate case by case. And I think at a level, you know, I, I don't know, even for myself personally, I don't necessarily have a problem with somebody who commits a crime who's now going to spend time in jail for it and have a sense of punishment. But on the other hand, if we're not doing anything to help rehabilitate them, if we're not addressing the behavior that motivated them to engage in the, the violent act or in breaking the law in the first place, we seem to be really missing something huge. I mean, for example, here in California, and I know other states do the same thing, we have good percentages of our population that as they're spending time in jail, they're learning such useful skills as how to make license plates or um, how to build park benches, uh, neither of which I think are very marketable skills once you're outside of the criminal justice system, and it just doesn't make any sense. As opposed to actually educating them to be equipped to survive in the outside world once they get out. There's, there's no acknowledgement of, of the fact that these even long-term, even long-term sentences are ending at some point, either by parole or just by the, you know, they served their 25 years. Uh, I'm working on a new project related to the fact that 85% of these people are parents, and they go back to the children who they were separated from by their sentences, and no one no one treats them as parents in that context. And we're going to start doing parenting skills and parent skills tra- education related to dealing with the, the shame and stigma associated with being a prisoner, but also with the reality that the children of prisoners 
a very high probability of becoming prisoners themselves in their lifetimes. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, the disparities in the, in the system so heavily tipped towards non-whites that, uh, you know, black men who, uh, who, go, who go to prison, there's over a 50% chance that their children, their male children, will go to prison in their lifetimes. Now, can you imagine telling that to any other group you can think of, a religious group or a, you know, a political group, that 50% of your children are going to go to prison because of what you did? So we know that if we are successful in intervening in this process, we're going to see a drop in that number. They call it the, the school-to-prison pipeline. pipeline. Well, and, you know, even the issue, and we can talk about this um, after the break, even the issue of bail uh, seems to be leaning disproportionately um, toward those uh, <laughs> who have the capacity to write the check to get out or have the property to put up to, to secure the bail. And so suddenly now we have a system that is is less about um, whether or not we let you out on your own recognizance based on your background, your reputation, your your criminal record, your history, uh, the degree to which you can potentially be uh, you know, trusted on your own to wait uh, for your case to come to trial, but rather on whether or not you have a big enough bank account or have friends with enough money that can post bail for you. Well, that's that just does, that, that seems to be based too much on, on a monetary basis, and and that's getting into more and more intention these days too. Let's let's take a time out. I want to come back to more of our conversation. We're looking at a book called. Decarcerating America, From Mass Punishment to Public Health. It's edited by Ernst Ducker. We're going to come back to more of our conversation right after this. All right, right now, just 10 away from the hour of 6 o'clock, the latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Once again, with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation. We are discussing a new book called Decarcerating America from Mass Punishment to Public Health. The book, by the way, is published by New Press. Its editor is with us, Ernest Drucker. We're talking about some of the options that, quite frankly, America has been ignoring for too long. One of the big arenas, and I'm still, I think the jury is still out. Ernest here in California on the heels of legalization of marijuana. Uh, I think it's too early to tell even the effects in states like Colorado. But at the end of the day, isn't the vast majority of these people incarcerated at the state and federal level all in for drug-related crimes, a big percentage of them? I think it plays a role in the early arrests and incarceration of about 85% of prisoners. Wow. It starts with a drug offense. It's, 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 the, it's the net, the first net that, that they pick people up on, and that often leads to uh, uh, the inability to get other jobs and so on. Because once you get that record, it makes it very, you can't vote, you can't get loans for housing, you're not allowed to visit your family in public housing or they'll lose their housing. Uh, it, it's, it's, a real, it's a real punishing program that extends far beyond the prison sentence itself. And, and even after release, there's this, terrible fact that on release from prison, and you should understand that, with 2.2 million people behind bars in prisons and jails, and, uh, and of those, six 700,000, about a third, get released every year. They finish their sentences or they get paroled. So let's say 600,000 people plus coming out of prisons, and they come out traumatized, and they go back to their families and their homes for the most part, stigmatized and shamed, and then they have to pick up where they left off when they separated. The, the, the children, 85% have, have children, the prisoners. 
uh, a higher number, a higher proportion for women than for men. And the interruption of parenting in, in the households is, is a real issue for those children. That's why they become at risk themselves for serious problems. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a blackout about this. No one talks about it. You, you could be in, you know, the, the, in New York City, we have six neighborhoods that account for 85% of the state prisoners. Six neighborhoods of New York City, which is at less than half of the population of the state, but it accounts for 85% of the prisoners in the state. And they come from six neighborhoods in New York that have a total of about a million people. So they have very, very high rates of incarceration, which means in those neighborhoods, you go to a school and a classroom, every kid in that class has somebody in their extended family who is or has been or will be in prison. We did a survey at Montefiore Hospital in family medicine at the clinic for patients who were staying there and asked the families, anyone in your, in your family been in prison or jail recently? 54% in the Bronx. And what I've never quite understood, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is is certainly we 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 seem to specialize in the the punishment side of jail, but the notion of rehabilitation uh, seems to be sorely lacking. And and I've always wondered why do we see value in in educating men on how to create things like license plates, and yet we don't compel them to get a degree. So they can spend 30 years in jail and not complete a GED, uh, and yet in almost a a quarter of that time, I can come out with a PhD if I go to an institute of higher education. Why do we not see the connection between the, the capacity to educate people and give them greater opportunity greater skills when they come out, and then understand once the time has been served, and you kind of touched on this, that we we don't do anything to hide or expunge the record, so now suddenly they carry that scarlet letter A around their neck with them forever. Well, in fact, it's totally recognized, the value of education in prison, the evidence that if you do get educated in prison, it makes a dramatic difference in what happens when you get out of prison. Uh, as well as how, how, how the prison impacts on you for the experience. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's not, there was a period where the, the Pell Grants that made it possible for prisoners to pay for their education from, because there were many colleges uh, that were supporting, uh, and still are, supporting teaching in the, in the prisons. I taught in a prison uh, in New York State, so it's a barred prison initiative. Uh, and, and, um, so it's a well-known fact, and yet it's not the it's not the only thing that's going on because so many of the people in prison are 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 overwhelmed by the violence of it, and they wind up being just they're in solitary and they get in trouble and and with the, with the guards and and they and they, they don't they don't take advantage of these things. But there are many others, especially the ones who have long-term sentences. Often you they're, they're there for twenty years from age you know from age eighteen to thirty-eight. Uh, and uh, their families have to deal with that separation and the trauma of that. Another, another terrible thing about it is that with long prison sentences, when people come out, uh, the, the two weeks after discharge from prison, regardless of the reason you were there, um, is associated with a dramatic increase in uh, deaths. People have, in the two weeks after release from prison, it's a tenfold increase in the rate of death uh, among prisoners who reenter communities. And uh, the, the leading cause is drug overdoses, because one of the first things people do 
who were using drugs and they get out of prison is, is go out and get high, and they've lost their tolerance for opiates, and it kills them. Second leading cause is suicide. And, and sadly, again, you know, you're, to your point, that maybe a vast majority of prisoners are not taking advantage of some of the opportunities. We've got this all wrong. In my opinion, we ought to look at this and say, okay, you want to get time off? It's not just going to be good behavior, but it's going to be time off for an education. Believe me, if they come out of there with uh, master's degrees and uh, and bachelor's degrees and doctorates for prisoners that, because of the nature of their crime, have got to be in there for a longer time, and now they've got skills that they can actually go out and market uh, you would see a drastic turnabout in all of this. But again, the notion of rehabilitation doesn't seem to be uh, in there. It just It's the penal system, and that's it. It's an interesting look. I can't say that I agree with everything in the book, but certainly a lot of it, I think, is the cause to pause and reflect and really, I think, call America to rethink the way we approach the entire criminal justice system. The book is called Decarcerating America, From Mass Punishment to Public Health, newly released by The New Press and and its editor, Ernest Rucker, has been our guest today. Ernest, thanks so much for the time and the insights. 601, let's get caught up here. Some traffic for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett with the latest. Michael.